Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. What's new with you? Um, what's new in terms of things we've been discussing recently? Uh, I was having a look at the French papers the other day, and I saw a review of one of the Cazalet sagas. Did you? I thought they can't, it can't be the first translation, can it? I don't know. How interesting. I wonder if they've been listening to this podcast. <laughs> Undoubtedly. <laughs> who's, who's published it? I actually don't know. I should have taken notice of who's published it. It's, it was the third volume and the review was, it was in Le Monde and the review was by Florence Noiville, who's a very distinguished journalist and novelist actually, writes for Le Monde. And it was a very, very good review, except at one point I found I had to say out loud, no, it isn't. Because it's a very, very good perceptive review. And she said it's in the line of, you know, kind of English dynastic works. Like she said the Forsyth saga, which I don't know enough to know about, to know whether it is. She said Anthony Pole uh, and something else. And then she said, and Downton Abbey. Oh, and no. And I went, no, it isn't, <laughs> to an empty room. <laughs> How interesting. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So they, they've got those delights. That's things. good news. How about good you? News. Um, well, you know how a few weeks ago we read out the names of as many uh, independent bookshops as we could to mark we independent bookshop week yes it was a breathless episode it was. Um, <laughs> well I've since had another submission and I don't see why we shouldn't just keep the whole thing going forever um so I might just share that now shall I yeah go for it and um, because I've heard from Eamon who is a regular listener uh and he wants to alert us to two bookshops the first is in Buenos Aires good that is stretching our horizons it really is so it's called Lib- uh, Libreria Norte and it was founded by the Argentinian poet Hector Janovir. Uh, Eamon says that all of the writers of the Latin American uh, boom, so uh, Julio Cortazar and Carlos Fuentes and Mario Vargas Llosa and Daryl Gabo hung out there back in the day. And it's still run by the family, 
And it was founded in 1961, I I found out. So we wish them a happy 60th birthday, Mm. which is nice. Uh, And there's also a little close to home for for us now uh, and a much younger shop uh, because I think it opened just a few years ago. It's called La Lata Peinada, which is in Barcelona. And it specializes in Latin American literature. So this is obviously Eamon's specialism also. Uh, But it also does first editions and rarities. So, So there you go. An indie bookshop is is not just for Christmas or or a week, but for life. (laughs) Uh, Now, coming up on this week's show. Diary of a Provincial Lady, a hilarious fictionalised account of life in deepest Devon between the wars, was one of the 1930s most popular books. Indeed, it's never been out of print. Our writer Sarah Lonsdale rereads the novel now and finds perhaps more darkness and disquiet than she remembered. And Mary Beard finds new reasons to return to Rome's Colosseum just as soon as we're allowed. But first, Lucy, it's a special occasion. It is. And if we were all in the studio today, no doubt we would have a great big cake with 150 candles on because this week is the 150th birthday of one Marcel Proust, who casts a very long shadow over the rest of his century and beyond. A good moment then to survey the landscape and see what Proust means to us now. And happily, Adam Watt, Professor of French and Comparative Literature at the University of Exeter, did just that for us in a beautiful anniversary piece. We're delighted that he can talk to us today. So tisanes and madeleines at the ready. Adam, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks, Lucy. Let's talk about what Proust sort of means now, as it were. You say in your piece near the beginning that he has this extraordinary capacity to connect or reconnect us with a phenomenological, which is very difficult to say, with the phenomenological riches of life outside the window, which sounds like exactly what we've all been needing recently. Do you think lots of people turned to him in lockdown and and why would they do that? I, I think they did. Um, and I completely agree with you that phenomenological is one of the harder words to say and I'm going to try and avoid saying it having got it right first time there um yeah put it put more simply Proust is all about the senses and it's an odd thing to say because people think about Proust as a writer of very long books and it's dry and it's intellectual and it's but actually that's that's not the case he's he's someone who connects and reconnects us to the world around us in in very particular and and unexpected ways and I think that a lot of people have turned back to Proust or picked him up for the first time in the course of the last 18 months or so because well for a range of reasons one of them being that he's a kind of challenge some people think of him as a kind of literary Everest because of the the scale of the novel the duration of the thing we've been we've been shut up for an awful long time and it's 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 a wonderful opportunity to immerse yourself in something that seems to improve the more time you commit to it. And also he, as you say, you've got this brilliant phrase for him, a deserter from the army of the upright. He wasn't well himself, so he spent a lot of time um, basically observing from his window. And, and as you say, the language of illness and infection and confinement wouldn't be that new for him, would it, as you say? That's right. So the um, that phrase, I can't claim originality in that phrase, that's actually borrowed from Virginia Woolf's um, Essay oh, on, I should on have being ill. That. If yeah. I were well read, <laughs> I would know that. Sorry. It, it's a love. I love. I just love that phrase. Um, and he did famously spend an awful lot of his life in bed for for various sorts of ill health and complaints. 
But yeah, as you say, the, the language of disease, and there's an awful lot of specialised medical language and vocabulary in, in Proust's novel. And it's not just that he was self-obsessed, self-absorbed, and, and you know, he, he was the the Belle Epoque version of the person who looks up what they, what's wrong with them on Google. <laughs> yes, was... Google would have been hopeless for him, wouldn't it? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the roots of his medical obsession, which is probably a fair thing to call it, were in the fact that his, his father and then his younger brother were both not just doctors, but very, very highly esteemed, distinguished, successful, publicly visible men of science, med, men of, of medicine. So the... The, the medical world and and, and the, the the boundaries of medical knowledge and and the very specifically epidemiology and 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 trying to control disease spread was his father's bread and butter. So when you read à la recherche du temps perdu, when Proust reaches for a metaphor of contagion or disease, he goes into to cell biology. He taught there's just this extraordinary scope of the fields on which he draws for his metaphors and his his analogies a lot of that begins close to home and the you know the books that were lying around the parental drawing room as it were and i was thinking about it because you talk about the sensitivity as well so there's a sensitivity in the, in the sense that he couldn't like he had asthma and he couldn't breathe very well he was very sensitive to sound you know we don't know exactly what 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 was wrong with him physically do we or maybe we do know exactly but but also he was very very sensitive to language and to as you say what was what was happening and to social interaction and to memory and it's it's all about sensitivity really as though he's got a few layers of skin fewer than the rest of us that's right uh, and that's a nice way of putting it um i mean there's i think it's it's risky to to trace too many things back to a, a single complaint or trait of his, his character but it is the case we know that when he was 10 years old he had a very serious and sudden asthma attack that was quite unanticipated and left him close to death it was it was hugely serious and a shortage of breath and a very very considerable sensitivity to air quality they, they defined they characterized his existence from from then on and he didn't live a terribly long life he died when he was uh 51 but knowing that he had that medical condition is is one way of understanding perhaps why he was uh, such a very attentive observer because he wasn't always able to be part of what was going on. He was always just at a little distance. He was absolutely passionate about nature and the beauty that you could find in nature. But this was something that also, to put it colloquially, that it would set him off. It would it would make his eyes run and it would make him wheeze. And quite literally, he couldn't go too close to the window on the Boulevard Osman because of the fear that he had. And some of it was neurosis. We, we don't know exactly how much this was a genuine med medical condition, how much was in his mind, but he was terribly worried about breathing in what might be brought in from the, the street if the windows were open too far. There's an image you talk about in Swan's Way of the church in um, Combray, which is a lightly fictionalised version of where he spent a lot of his childhood. You say that that image is a good encapsulation of what his novel represents now. Can you talk us through it? Sure. So Proust narrator has a an extraordinary sensitivity to his surroundings, and 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 of course the, the most famous moment of, of Proust's novel is the, the Madeleine moment, um, which is all to do with with memory and an, an unbidden involuntary memory that kind of uh, overwhelms him when he has this mouthful of, of Madeleine. 
And so that, if you like, sets the tone for the importance of the past and our relationship to it. And a little bit later in Combray, the first part of the first volume of the novel, the narrator describes the church in the town, which is probably the oldest building in the town. And it's one in which he feels a very, very powerful connection to the past. He feels not just that it's an old building. He feels that when you stand within a structure of that sort, you can somehow communicate with what has gone on before there. You, you, you have a, a deeper sense of lines running way beyond the measure of your own existence to, to, to much earlier times. And the way he does that is to talk about, he calls it an édifice occupant, si l'on peut dire, un espace à quatre dimensions, la quatrième étant celle du temps, so a, a four-dimensional space, and that the fourth is, is the dimension of time that, that, that is somehow perceptible in this space. And he gives temps a capital T. It, it's not just the, the time that clicks around on your watch, on your wrist. It's, it's the longue durée. It's, it's the, the, the sense of existence through time that he feels is present to us in a space like the church. Given this, as you say, intense sensitivity to, to time, to the passage of time on, on its effect on things, its effect on people, how did his relationship with the works change? over time he was a chronic reviser wasn't he absolutely and that, that's a, that's a great question he he um he wrote this novel which in many senses simplistic and complex is all about time it's there in the title but his own relationship to time is is constantly in tension with his work on the novel and and, and you're absolutely right he was he was a chronic recidivist reviser he just couldn't leave stuff alone he just always had to to add and to add and and the proofs that one might expect to, to, to come back with, a, you know, a light dusting of, of grammatical adjustments and the odd typo, in fact, came back almost doubled and tripled in volume because he just kept going. The publishers must have been just furious with him, mustn't they? <laughs> They'd have been like, oh, not again. The moments when the proofs were being were being corrected, the, the letters that you find at those points are just, some of them are hilarious. The forbearance and the patience of, of Gallimard mm. as Proust, you know, sends back <laughs> screeds and screeds of extra stuff. That, you know, they have to they have to completely repage set over and over again. But the, the whole thing becomes a race against time because Proust is, is already 42 when uh, Du Côté de Chez Swann is published in 1913. And the book he initially had planned as a two-volume work, then a three-volume work. And then as the Great War unfolds, his illness means that he's not able to, to be a combatant. He remains in Paris and he just keeps writing and keeps writing and keeps writing. And so the book grows and grows but his commitment to it and his realization of what it could be and what a, a kind of lasting contribution it might be to our understanding of, of ourselves and the world that we're in means that he has this weird schedule of turning his days inside out and working through the night, not eating very much, drinking huge amounts of coffee, taking a whole range of stimulants to keep himself going. And as a result, his health gets worse and worse. So he, he can see that this is going to be the work that he's always dreamed of it being, but he's also aware that his time is diminishing. Part of the exploration of time, and you say it's one of the things that makes him a great modernist novelist, um, along with, you mentioned Joyce and Wolfe, which 
it might seem a bit surprising to begin with. I mean, they also play with time, but very differently. I was thinking about it and thinking, well, that's what they do is much more compact. And then that seems a mad thing to be saying, oh, look how compact Ulysses is, or, or Mrs. Dalloway. Famously compact. And, no, but actually, in, in relation to La Recherche, it, it, it kind of is, isn't it? Yeah. It's a diff- different, completely different thing they're doing. One of the things that, that struck me years ago when I was a doctoral student, and it still does, that you, you read, if you read academic criticism or you, you read work about the 20th century novel or you know the modernist novel or whatever it is so often you find a sentence that groups together Proust, Joyce, Kafka, Wolf (laughs) they've almost become one word and they are taken as one as modernist writing but actually when you break it down to compare you know Mrs Dalloway or Ulysses with A la recherche du temps perdu is to compare wildly different books wildly different structures wildly different ambitions for what can be achieved between the covers of, of those volumes. And, and, and never mind Kafka. Yeah. <laughs> you about the life, it feels like he's a sort of concertina. It kind of opens out like a concertina or like a fan, I suppose. Yes. And that's the concertina is a, is a wonderful image. And Proust is full of, I mean, that's a opposite for a range of reasons, partly because Proust was absolutely passionate about music. And the image is a good one because the concertina opens and closes. And that's one of the things that people find most challenging, I think, about reading Proust is that you can have a very, very long sentence that describes a very, very short moment. (laughs) And you can also have a very short sentence that covers really quite a big chunk of time. And those kind of expansions and contractions of chronology within the novel exist alongside jumps back and forward in time. So you have moments of anticipation where he jumps forward and talks to you about something that he would later know, but that hadn't happened yet. And equally, you'll have a moment of flashback of reflection on something that happened, you know, way, way back when, or even something that happened a few days ago, but that he hadn't mentioned. <laughs> there's been also, there's been a lot of, I'm going to say this in quotation marks, if that's possible, new, as it were, Proustian discoveries made recently, haven't there? There seems to be a tremendous appetite to find out about him, but also to for people to link it to their own lives. They kind of add their own biography to his. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> There's been a a huge amount of interest. The principal source of recent discoveries are are the archives of uh, Bernard de Fallois, who's one of the the pioneers of of Proust scholarship. He died in 2018 and his personal archive has been explored and mined for a a lot of things that scholars knew would be there, but other things that appeared that, that weren't known about. And so that's the, you know, part of the 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 new discoveries of Proust that we've seen in recent years. The compulsion to it sort of attach one's own biography or to, to read one's own biography through the 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 Proustian lens is something that um yeah it is it is quite common partly I think because something that maybe we don't draw enough attention to um one of the most extraordinary things about a novel of this length is that it's a first person novel we, we are constantly in the company of someone who says I and we feel like we know them you know that sort of uh experience of, of proximity. You also talk about the the cultural capital that his work has, which is, you know, huge, and the people that he's influenced. You're I'm talking about some recent late 20th century, early 21st century stuff like um, the graphic novelist Alison Bechtel and the filmmaker Wes Anderson. What what do they do with him? Bechtel is just, is wonderful. And I, I, I think the graphic novel 
has a long and very distinguished history in French. You know, the, the, the bande dessinée is, is something in, that culturally is not frowned upon or kind of pushed to the side as a something that's for children or is a bit weird or anything like that. It, it's fascinating to read Fun Home, which gives this important place to Proust. I mean, there, there are so many other writers that feature and that, that kind of shape Fun Home. Uh, Proust is there because of his the central position that he gives in the novel to a discussion of uh, same-sex desire, um, to homosexuality, to something which hadn't been frankly addressed at length in the way that Proust did. And it's a, a perfect sort of vehicle for Bechdel's narrative about her narrator's father's struggle with his own sexual identity and her narrator's own developing understanding of, of, of who she is. Uh, sexually. So, you know, the, the, the Alain de Botton book, How Proust Can Change Your Life, was a, a, a sort of, a, was a real milestone in, in the crossover, if you like, between Proust as high culture and Proust as mainstream, accessible, and, in, you know, in his case, self-help. So Bechdel does a, a very, really quite a, a highbrow, but also multi-layered handling of Proust. In The Life Aquatic, you know, you could blink and miss it, but the fact is, that it's it's built in there that that uh, Kate Blanchett's character is seen in this this very weird, very male-dominated environment. Reading Proust, and there's there's something about her her self-confidence and her uh, you know her her own cultural capital that she is she is is reading reading Proust to her as yet unborn child. I was uh, I was wondering about that because I was thinking, well, is you know is it is it people just putting it in to kind of look clever? So I did a bit of reading and. Um, Wes Anderson has, he's read Swan's Way, he said. He hadn't read all of it, but he'd read Swan's Way. And he said it took him ages, yeah. which is <laughs> honest of him. But I wonder said which that, translation he read. I don't know, I don't know, actually. But And he said that it gave, the, the images from it were still in his head. And so I was I was just looking around a little bit and I found a website. This is almost by the by, but I felt like I was caught in a kind of Proustian time loop. <laughs> There's a website called Accidentally Wes Anderson, where they take... <laughs> pictures of things that look as though they should be in the Wes Anderson film. It's extraordinary. And one of those pictures was the station, uh, uh, Ilier, which is the town where Proust actually did spend his time, but the station has been renamed Ilier Combré in, oh, yeah. in, in homage to Proust. So they've actually changed the name of it. So, so there's a picture of an absolutely perfectly Wes Anderson-like French provincial small train station, and it says Ilier Combré. And then there's a thing there, there's a little sign saying this is the name of the, you know, this is both the real town and the name of the Proustian town. And I thought, gosh, I have to stop. I've gone down a rabbit hole. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's that's wonderful. Accidentally, Wes Anderson. Yes. Um, the, the point about Ilie Combre is an interesting one in that um, the town, Ilie was Proust's father's hometown, and he spent most of his childhood summers in Ilie. And because Proust's stock rose through the 20th century and 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 he became the, this great icon of literary achievement in 1971 so the centenary the town as a whole changed its name formally to Ilie Combe and so now that's the this weird overlap or or fusing of life and fiction that's extraordinary it's an interesting point i wonder where else you could you could do that i mean there'd be so many potential places to to, to bridge that gap and rename places yeah sense a new trend perhaps let's start a website <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. and um 
Finally, Adam, you say that towards the end of your piece, you say that Proust claims that that creative work functions as a sort of optical instrument, a, a lens through which you can see yourself and your world more clearly. Does this still hold true for, for him and the work, do you think? I think it does, but I think it maybe does so in, in ways that are different to those that he might have had in mind when he when he was writing those lines. I guess what I mean by that is one of the things I know that puts people off reading Proust now is the 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 kind of snobbishness, if you like, that's the shorthand that people use, that, that here is a book which has great tracts of it that are uh, dedicated to the upper crust in Paris around the turn of the century. And I don't think many of us, you know, feel like that's much of a lens for the life that we lead today. Um, but I don't think that's what Proust means. And I think that, that genuinely this is a work that, that resonates with us. And I think what I was trying to get at towards the close of the, the piece was that if we see beyond that to the personal, to the profound, to the, the observational stuff, there are lots of social scenes where we're, we're in amongst the gratin, the, the upper crust of Paris. But the narrator isn't a native of that world, and he's always just on the edges of it. Even if he's you know, sat at the table with these people, he's, he's observing and he's thinking about them, and he's, he's as interested in the, the servants below the stairs as he is in the people in these parties. But the narrator is constantly observing, constantly filtering and weighing things up and hypothesizing about why things are. And I think if we take the time and COVID has given us that time in a, you know, in a weird, a weird way. If we take the time to immerse ourselves in the world of this individual and his, his vision, we can start looking at our own world differently. You know, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you so much. I feel like we could go on in, in loops for a long time, but unfortunately <laughs> our time is, is finite here. But thank you so much um, for talking to us. And uh, yeah, let's, let's raise a glass to 150 years. Thank you very much, Adam. Indeed. Thanks. Great pleasure. Still to come on the show, Mary Beard revisits the Colosseum, dispelling a few myths along the way, and Sarah Lonsdale encounters a surprisingly modern spirit in a novel about small-town life in the late 1930s. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. And... We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco and Susan Sontag and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 
to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we turn to Sarah Lonsdale and Diary of a Provincial Lady, we're joined by our classics editor, Mary Beard, to tell us about some new developments at the Colosseum in Rome. Mary, it's lovely as ever to have you here with us. Nice to be with you. Good news as well from Rome. <laughs> yes, always, always good to have some good news from, uh, from Italy. It's not a country that abounds in good news. <laughs> but you have been writing specifically about the Colosseum and about how really it's always looked better from the outside. But this is this is this is a good news. This is what's changing. Yeah. yeah well, I, I up to now, I, I know I wrote a book about the Colosseum, and in some ways, I'm very interested in it. I've always thought that it was a a, a bit of a lousy tourist experience. I mean, it looks brilliant from the outside, and you know, up until the pandemic, you'd have seen queues sometimes hours long waiting to get into it and when you got into it it was all well frankly a bit of a ruin you know and there were there weren't many places you could go and you know I used to often go and watch um mums and dads you know and the kids had said they were being taken to Rome where do you want to go I've got to go see the Colosseum <laughs> and uh, they got in and you know mums and dads were really working overtime to try to keep these kids interest up because it just wasn't quite as good as they'd imagined. I mean, I was one of I was one of these kids, so I I, <laughs> I feel it only too strongly. <laughs> yeah, I think I was too. Because you get in and you think, well, where where were the lions? <laughs> I remember my dad saying, yes, they used to flood the whole place, and there were these incredible naval scenes, and I was just really struggling <laughs> to imagine it amid the dust. Yes, yeah, so you can see why the, the sort of 
um, dress up gladiators who charge an extortionate amount to let you have your picture taken with them outside the Colosseum in one of Rome's great tourist attractions. You can see why they do such good business because when, when <laughs> mum and dad and the kids come out, you know, mum and dad are desperate and they think 20 euros for one snap with a gladiator. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> but, you know, things are looking up. And I think what's partly been disappointing about the Colosseum in general on the inside has been that really there has been so few places you could go and what has just been opened up is the basements the basements are actually quite exciting because they're where the animals were probably to some of the gladiators uh, where they waited before they went up into the arena through a, a, a carefully arranged you know set of contraptions of lifts and pulleys and whatever and what you're going to be able to do now is is go down and see how that kind of substructure uh, of the, the Colosseum worked. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit more impressive than downstairs at Downton, really, but it's got the same idea behind it. I mean, what, you know, what did it look like if you were um, one of the terrified victims of it? And the basements were were underneath what must have been a wooden floor and there would have been trap doors in the wooden floor and uh, many of the performers if we can call them that uh, would have emerged through through the floor to to meet their fate um, so it gives you a much more rounded experience but also i mean you know in a very simple way it just gives you something more to do <laughs> and another sort of vista on it because i think that's been the real problem that there's you know it's a bit mm. of a ruin and then there's not much to explore and most of the places you'd like to explore up to now have been uh, or at least since i've been visiting the coliseum it does make the coliseum something where you'd actually recommend people might go whereas in the past i've always said enjoy it from the outside <laughs> well and it's a huge space that they've opened up this underground backstage uh, it's some fifteen thousand square meters isn't it and this is i mean you've hinted there with the trap doors and and that sort of thing it was there would have been this is where all of the amazing technology of the time would have been so my dad trying to keep me interested uh, with stories about flooding it uh flooding the the stage with for naval battles this is where all the pipes would have been and all of that uh, yeah and he your dad was absolutely right uh, it's still a mystery how they did that bit. I mean, we we do have a pretty good idea about how the um, the lifts and the pulleys and the ropes work to get up animals through the floor. No one's ever quite understood how they managed to flood the arena. In a way, the Colosseum's in a good place for flooding anything because it, it was built uh, on the site of Nero's private lake in his vast palace, and. And it's, it's pretty damp. If you go, one of the things I remember about going into um, the the basements is that the the water table is pretty high, um, and it can be a bit soggy. How they managed to turn that into a full scale lake uh, with a naval battle on it, heaven only knows. I mean, I've, I, I, either they were brilliant, we don't quite know how, or the Romans were very easily impressed by, <laughs> by, by, by <laughs> and a few model boats. But you also say that actually, if you could go back in time in there, you wouldn't go back to Roman times, no. which was intriguing. I mean, of course, I'm a bit curious. How could how could you not be curious to 
what it was really like. But um, I, I think it would have been, I don't think it would mean a very comfortable visit. I mean, I'm a curious as a historian, but you know, I don't really fancy an afternoon seeing a load of people slaughtered, a load of animals slaughtered. And you know, I, I've often thought, when would I best like to go back to the Colosseum? And I have no doubt now that the mid-19th century AD would have been the perfect time because it was then at its real height of being a romantic monument. It was a bit less dilapidated than it is now, not hugely less, but it was before it had been turned into an archaeological site. And uh, it, it was basically the most fantastic botanical garden, whole of the inside, instead of being rather kind of unpleasant, um, kind of brutally clean rock stone seating. Um, it was taken over by a myriad of plants. And some were plants that were really only known um, in the Colosseum in Europe. And people used to fantasize that the seeds of these plants had been brought over in the fur of the poor animals that had come from Africa and were going to be sadly slaughtered. And that, that they kind of kept, were kept alive for hundreds of years in the microclimate of the Colosseum. That sounds plausible to me. And your high water table and the damp, that would all help, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, well you know, may, maybe that's the case. But it, it certainly had a kind of romantic tinge. You know, it's like going, going to a, a, an exotic wilderness, but then just to, to kind of add, add to the fun um, is that there were some um, there was a cast of characters who um, uh, had fetched up there. In particular, there was a hermit, a resident hermit, who lived in his little hermitage in the middle of the Colosseum. Uh, you could go and visit the hermit and see the plants. And um, so it was a, a kind of uh, a wonderland experience. I do lament the loss of the hermit. Yes. <laughs> what a great job. <laughs> Bring the hermit back. It I must say. be the most romantic thing imaginable because not only is it the ruins and the hermit and the garden, but it, but they're real ruins. It's not a folly that some you know rich bloke had to build. They are genuine ruins that you could wander around. That, that's absolutely right. And so it's like it, it kind of out follies a folly because it was real. Yeah. Well, I mean, ha ha having heard all of that, having heard of all all of those wonderful descriptions it's it's almost seems anticlimactic to ask you what the actual developments are uh, still to come because we're not going to we're not going to get that coliseum back i don't i don't think instead we have a third phase of of renovations and reconstructions to to look forward to instead and they're rather more modest but still good yeah they're still good and uh, you know um, you know in my in my dreams i still think you know oh you know give it give it to me and i'll replant it but i think that's not very likely uh, within the next five ten years um the other thing you're going to be able to do is to climb up high because uh, over the past couple of decades you you haven't been able to go down low but you also haven't been able to climb up to the gods in the Colosseum, and uh, i managed to do that once when we were making a television programme. And 
it was real eye-opener, actually, and I think that it will be great fun for people because seating in the Colosseum for the audience was, was rigorously segregated by formal social rank. I mean, it's not just like, at, you know, the opera house where, you know, the rich people have got the best seats and the people who can't afford much have got the worst. This was actually a legal requirement. You know, the senators sat on the front row and the next down sat on the next row. And at the back were the women and the slaves, the very, very back high up. And I'd always taught my students, you know, that this was a real interesting case of, um, uh, of Rome enacting its social hierarchy in such a way the poor old women and slaves, they got a rotten view. You know, they were right up at the back, couldn't see anything. So, you know, they knew their place. Inadvertently, they gave them the best view. And I've always imagined subsequently, you know, the poor old senators, you know, sitting in their club class seats on the front row in the beating sun because the shades of the that were put over the awnings that were put over the Colosseum didn't protect those on the front row uh, and being uncomfortably close to the uh, to the to the action. I've always now imagined them turning around and looking up to uh, the poor people at the very back and feeling so slightly jealous of the women and it makes you think again about the i mean the the, the phrase we use you say um you know you're sitting among uh, amongst the gods or you're sitting up with the gods uh, and it's always said as a as a criticism you know it, like you're getting a raw deal but actually if you think about it again it's it is the best seat in the house isn't it it's there's a, the, it's divine it is the best seat and you just get yeah it is like you know, you're watching from Mount Olympus and you can see everything and no one's getting in your way. It's very strongly raked. So, you know, you can have people in front of you, but you still easily see over their heads. Uh, and it is, you know, it is just a fantastic play. If you want to watch, if you, if you, you know, if you want to watch men killing each other and men killing animals, it's by far the best place to do it. <laughs> <laughs> There's your tip. Or if you, or if you just want to hang out. <laughs> On that, on that note, uh, on that lovely image, um, we will uh, say goodbye for now. Thank you so much, Mary Bird. Thanks very much. <laughs> when in December 1929, the literary magazine Time and Tide ran the first instalment of a new serial, Diary of a Provincial Lady, no one, not even the magazine's visionary editor, Lady Margaret Ronda, could have foreseen how popular the stories would become. Indeed, as our writer Sarah Lonsdale points out this week, attached to the first submission was a handwritten note from the author, E.M. Delafield, recommending the waste paper basket as a useful receptacle for unwanted short fiction. Yet, Sarah says, from that first week, the diary's protagonist would become one of the most popular fictional creations of the 1930s, entertaining readers who saw in her only too much of themselves and guiding them through the political decade of financial depression, rapidly mutating social relations and the rise of extremism. Sarah Lonsdale joins us now to discuss the enduring power of Delafield's fiction. Sarah, thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure. Hello. Diary of a Provincial Lady has, it's never been out of print, but I don't think that necessarily means that everyone uh, knows what it is or would consider picking up a copy. I think given the title, many people might expect something quite mm, quaint and conservative maybe, which isn't really the case. So would you give us uh, an introduction? Yes. So Diary of Provincial Lady is literally that. It's it's the diary day-to-day doings uh, of a woman who lives deep in the Devon countryside uh, with her rather taciturn husband uh, and her two small children 
and Madame Rosel, who is the governess uh, of their daughter, Vicky. Um, and on the surface, it does seem to be a terribly banal and rather dull proposition. She goes to her women's institute meetings, talks to the neighbours, she plants her spring bulbs, uh, she holds uh, fundraising funfairs in her garden, plays tennis badly, and she goes to drinks parties dressed badly. And very little goes on. She occasionally goes to Plymouth to uh, pawn and then buy back her wedding ring whenever things get a bit tight and very often she has to deal with uh, a broken oven uh, and and the food always being undercooked. And But I mean I suppose that the fact that it first appeared in in Time and Tide, a feminist socialist uh, magazine and, and that the book was later published by Virago as well, I mean these are clues to the the spirit of the work. Yes. So uh, E.M. Delafield herself uh, was a director of Time and Tide and was uh, a very strong feminist. Uh, She was good friends with with Lady Rhonda as well. And what she wanted to do, uh, I think, with Diver Provincial Lady is lay bare the realities of married women's lives in the very late 1920s and through the 1930s particularly those women, I think, who now were given an education of some sort, possibly not university, but certainly through school, but then uh, had to face uh, marriage where they were very much the inferior partner. Yet women were brought up to think that the only thing that they should do and should aspire to in life was to get married and have children. And she was really exposing, I suppose, the lie really at the heart of middle class society. And lie is an interesting word because, of course, you describe the narrator protagonist as a serial liar. So, I mean, this is part of the point is to show up how we're all liars, I suppose, lying constantly throughout the day to ourselves and to others, being lied to that, you know, lies are what society and circumstance seem to to demand of us or of them. Yes, she does lie to uh, not hurt people's feelings, but she also lies because it's much easier to lie rather than tell the truth. But she gets confused. So there are certain points where she feels she should have told the truth, but she didn't have the courage to do so. And it's really interesting. I mean, the very first entry, which is dated November the 7th, 1929, says, plant the indoor bulbs just as I'm in the middle of them. Lady Box calls. I say untruthfully how nice to see her (laughs) that's the very very opening line and she's already told the line I counted up there were several you know in the the first entry so yes mendacity goes all the way through it I love the way she lies she often does lie just because she just wants to get out of a of a conversation doesn't she there's there's one where she's talking to I think an, a, a military man at dinner, and he kept he talks to her about stag hunting, and he tells he says the stags like it really. There's absolutely <laughs> nothing wrong with it, and it's a wonderful, good, old-fashioned English sport. And she says, "I just said yes, it is," because that was so much easier. And there's quite a few of those. It's very funny. Yes, and and actually, I mean, that's a really good point about her position within this very rural, very feudal country society. Is that she admits to us. You know, she's terrified of dogs. She hates hunting. She can't play tennis. Yet she's in this society which sort of relies, those are the sort of warp and weft of the society she lives in. And that was actually very much E.M. Delafield. She she married this um, rural uh, agent for for a big house. And she was a bit of a fish out of water. Again, a lot of us feel, don't we, we're imposters wherever we go. 
at a dinner party or a drinks party or or, or, or you know even at work um and again she was sort of um showing us that that there's nothing to be ashamed of in that when did you first read the diary then because i mean this is part of our rereading series um where people do precisely that so how did you first read it and how how does that differ now to to reading it in in 2021 i first read it many 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 years ago actually it was um just part of i was starting to get to know kind of so-called middle brow fiction and and i read her i read Mose, rose mccauley and I, I i did remember finding her hilarious and and absolutely uh, a tonic really compared to some of the other 20s and 30s literature I read and it was during lockdown when we were all let's face it looking for something to cheer us up and I did laugh I, I laughed out loud uh, many times but what I realized and maybe it was um, something to do with the times we're living through the sort of a darkness uh, behind the gaiety and the sort of hilarity uh, came through much more strongly than I ever remembered when I first read it. And I suppose that's an inevitable thing because you know the first time you read it, you would you would inevitably focus more on the humour, the, the surprise of it, I suppose, especially in the context of, of the rest of your reading at the time. But on second reading, with that element of surprise gone, it does kind of clear the way for other things to bubble up to the surface. You, you mention um, revenge along with regret, and and you say most richly self deception all form strong psychological undercurrents here. But another thing uh, that really interesting, because after I uh, I reread uh, the diary, I also started rereading some of her short stories, for which she isn't actually uh, that well known at all. And they are, some of them are actually really very dark. There's murder, adultery, there's jealousy. They're all there in, in her short stories. Some of them are literally only about a thousand words long. Um, and they're little brilliant uh, gems. And I think actually they, they could do with being uh, republished. So she, she you know, they, they were there in her thinking uh, and they're very much there underneath the surface um, of the provincial lady. But by the time... Um the diary first started to um, appear, so late 1929. The author was, was she a known entity by this point? Or she was, was, I mean, she she published always as E.M. Delafield and the gender neutral name there didn't really fool anyone. You mentioned a TLS review, which made me laugh. Yes, yes. So uh, her mother actually was a was a fairly uh, famous author. She was Mrs. Henry de la Pasteur. She had a very difficult and complicated relationship with her mother, uh, who was rather overbearing. But she wanted to obviously differentiate herself from her mother uh, from the start. She published her first novel actually in 1917, um, and that was followed on by uh, several others all through the 1920s. And she was a very regular contributor also to several literary journals during the 1920s so she was pretty well known but this was a completely new departure and I know um, we shouldn't dismiss Middlebrow writing I mean it's been dismissed for years we and certainly years. don't on this podcast I should say we <laughs> no not at all I don't we I shun the term itself, itself. <laughs> yeah I just, it seems to me it's basically always used disparagingly, but it's, it's not. It's as sharp as anything you'll read. This it seems to me. No, absolutely. This this was a, a quite a bold departure for her. Um, I mean, she was always interested in the lives of women um, and and often the domestic lives of women. And I think probably that's why Middlebrow has been dismissed because it focuses on the lives of 
women and their uh, relationships with their children and their husbands and, and things like that. But this, you know, this was uh, something completely new, this very staccato, present tense delivery in the diary form. Um, uh, and of course, you know, we can see, can't we, that um, Bridget Jones is a direct descendant, um, I think, from uh, from the provincial lady. Yeah, it made, it made Bridget Jones seem... Um, much well I don't mean that it wasn't original because of course it was original but it but you did think oh okay <laughs> that's where it's from yes exactly uh, but I, I uh, you know I, I do prefer the provincial lady because she she talked a, a, about a lot more of the sort of the social uh, concerns um, you know as I said the sort of the the, de- the depression uh, the rise of extremist politics um, whereas some I don't know sometimes I felt Bridget Jones was possibly a bit too focused on the number of calories she was <laughs> <laughs> well I mean uh we'll we'll have to leave it there really I feel like there's a lot more to be said about um about Ian Delafield I'm, I'm wondering um on a parting note you're the author Sarah of a book called Rebel Women Between the Wars Fearless Writers and Adventurers does Delafield feature there she does yes uh not not in a she's not one of my sort of main characters but she's definitely in there I talk about Time and Tide and the women who worked uh, on Time and Tide, which was which was quite a rebellious publication, run by women for women kind of thing, uh, really the first of its kind. Uh, and she was, as I say, on the directors uh, and was definitely egging everyone on to um, to sort of break the rules wherever they could. And I think it's an anniversary year for Time and Tide this year. Actually, um, I was on a panel. I think it was earlier this year. I've completely lost the sense of of what year it is, time passing, but I'm pretty sure it was this year and there's a tremendous archive that people can access now, I think. Yes, there is. Um, in fact, uh, I think I was on another panel. I, th- I think it was actually last year was the uh, anniversary, but they had to delay it several times, unfortunately, because of because of the pandemic. Um, but uh, yes, uh, just over 100 years ago. Well, um, Sarah Lonsdale, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to adam watt sarah lonsdale and mary beard thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.